Hello and welcome to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. I'm Mary Nightingale. In this series of talks, we meet business founders and leaders to find out how they became successful. And we discuss the key moments of change along that journey to becoming a brand legend. And my guest today is Jessica DeLuca, joint founder of the online sensation Cult Beauty, which has uh, transformed the previously, I think, rather traditional world of cosmetics and skincare since it launched in 2008. Sold in 2021 to the Hutt Group for $275 million, Jessica is in a prime position to tell us what success looks like and how they achieved it. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Mary. It's very lovely to meet you. Now, for anyone who hasn't heard of the brand Cult Beauty, what exactly is it? What does it do? Cult Beauty, we call the insider's guide to the world's best beauty buys. We're an e-commerce company, meaning that we sell beauty products online, but we only sell the very best of the best beauty products, the ones that actually do what they say they do, which sounds kind of obvious, but it was actually really revolutionary at the time that we set it up. Because I think the world of beauty before that was a little bit staid, wasn't it? It was painted ladies behind counters and it was all rather mysterious with an element of, of the snake oil about it. You never quite knew what you were getting. You just did as you were told. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to take an education-first approach to selling beauty products where we treated our customers like intelligent women who deserve to understand what they were buying and why they would buy it and how to use it and why they would use it. So I got the idea when I was having a traditional retail, <laughs> beauty retail experience, and I found that experience quite um, quite disappointing. I couldn't find the information that I was looking for. And then a couple of months later, I was flipping through the InStyle Best Beauty Buys Guide, and I was really inspired by that. I loved how the products were positioned on their own, not as part of a brand, not as part of a regime, but presented by experts who use them on their A-list clients, um, people whose whose livelihood depend on depend on looking good, so therefore probably take it a little bit more seriously than most people need to. The best dermatologists and makeup artists and facialists and nutrition experts um, in the world getting together to say, hey, this is what really works, and this is what I use, this is what's in my kit bag. The products weren't just presented by themselves as standalone. They were presented beautifully. The photography was beautiful. Uh, The description of them was beautiful. The description wasn't the same kind of marketing materials that had been released by the brand that at the time was just was just reused and reused because that was the the educational materials provided by the brand. This was taking that information a step further and incorporating the scientific and real-world experience that the experts had and providing additional education about why. So was that the sort of light bulb moment where you thought, aha? Absolutely. And I was quite inspired by Netaporte. If you think back to what the web looked like in 2005, 2006, it was... It was pretty ugly. And Net-A-Porte, obviously uh, founded by Natalie Massigny, Mark Quinn Newell, and Carmen Busquets, sold clothing the way that a beautiful magazine was presented. Obviously, Natalie's background is a fashion journalist, and Carmen used to have a shop in Venezuela where she would fly over to Paris, go to the fashion shows, take Polaroid pictures, and then go back to Venezuela and sell the products to her 
to her clients back in Venezuela. So she effectively was running an e-commerce website. She just was physically transporting the images. So women, I think, can be inspired by looking through the pages of a fashion magazine about what looks so beautiful. Um, and I think that the three of them put together an absolutely beautiful, beautiful company uh, with that inspiration. But beauty products aren't necessarily sold with gorgeous images of pots and jars because that's not really giving you the information that you need. Beauty is much more information-based. And my background was as a data analyst, really, as a business analyst. So I understood how to, uh, uh, how to build databases and speak to the experts and similar experts um, and create our own expert panel and then build a database that broke down all of the different data points and pieces of information that the experts used to make recommendations to their own clients and create a searchable resource for any woman in the UK who would uh, who normally wouldn't have access to to those extremely expensive experts. <laughs> well, uh, exactly. But also who, I mean, the, the thing about beauty is you never quite know what you're getting. They're selling you a dream, aren't they? Or at least they always used to in those glossy adverts in, in magazines and so on. So what you're talking about is getting some sort of truth, opening up the reality of what's behind these brands. And what's in the products, absolutely. Yeah, truth in truth in beauty was another phrase that we would use to keep ourselves, you know, uh, not to say keep ourselves honest, that's not the right way to say it. Um, Cutting through some of the some of the gloss, maybe. Yes, absolutely. And some of the hyperbole mm. and also the fear. I really didn't like how the beauty industry was selling to women based on fear. If you're not beautiful enough, no one's going to love you. If you get old, no one's going to love you. You're going you're to lose your worth. And I thought that there was a much kinder and more respectful way to sell beauty products, which is to just, as you said, tell the truth. What's in them? How does it work? Why does it work? What's it going to do for you? Okay, so you built this, and we'll talk much, much more about it, but you built this incredible success, this sort of juggernaut. Give us some some headline facts and figures about cult beauty. I mean, you have now stepped away from it, haven't you, which we'll discuss more as, as well later. But but what size is, is the business and how many followers does it have on Instagram and so on? Gosh, you know, those stats... Um... I wouldn't be able to tell you right now. I've really stopped. I've really stopped looking at it since I stepped away because it would just be far too painful. I know that when I stepped down, we were well over um, we were well over a million followers on Instagram. But if I look at it every day and I'm not part of it every day, it just um, I think that would hurt. Yeah. So I have to be very proud of what I created and be very proud that I set up. I set up a business with a mission that can continue without me and trust that it is. But if I continue to watch and count and not have that be in my control anymore, I think that would drive me absolutely bonkers. <laughs> does that make sense? Yes, it does. Make, it makes me kind of sad. It must be a very difficult thing to do. Again, we're going to discuss that later. So, okay, so you sold in 2021 mm -hmm. to the Hutt Group. Mm -hmm. Give us a snapshot of where Cult Beauty was when you sold. We had built a nine-figure revenue business. And we had uh, a couple of hundred employees, which I found quite exciting that we were able to generate so much revenue per employee. We created a very um, efficient and automated business, which meant that we could hire the best of the best and really have a very solid team creating this wonderful business with us. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? 
Um, I think actually I did. I remember seeing a movie back in the 80s with my mom and Diane Keaton in it, um, and she started her own business in it. And I just loved, I loved the idea that she had so much control over her own destiny with that path. And that's always really appealed to me. I'm not a very operationally thinking person. I'm much more of a problem-solving person. So once I've identified the problem and designed a system to solve it and then trained someone on how to solve it, I don't want to look at it again. So it doesn't, that doesn't really lend itself to being a very good employee. <laughs> You've described yourself as, as an IT nerd. Is that how you see yourself? Are you a bit of a nerd, do you think? Um, I get really excited about about categorizing data. I don't think everybody feels that way. No, I think that does make you a nerd, actually. I mean, you know, in in obviously a very, very good way, but it's a very useful skill to have, isn't it? It's just such a weird thing to enjoy because I will look at any issue that a friend is is facing in their business and I'll go, okay, this is how we can solve it so you never have to think about it again. And I'll say, this piece of data relates to this piece of data so you can search on this and we can run a report that does this and then this will trigger this to to solve that issue. And that's just... I just, I build software in my head to solve problems, which I guess, yeah, officially makes me a nerd. Yeah, I think you definitely are. So what exactly were you doing then just before you set up Cult Beauty? I was working as a consultant at Barclays Capital. And before that, actually, I was working as a consultant for IBM with various investment banks building large-scale web applications. So at that time, those applications were focused on financial services and financial management. So it was designing accounting software, but also sometimes I was able to design front-end software, which is much more exciting for me. I um, There was a trading platform where I got to just sit down with the traders and talk about what information they needed, when they needed it, and how they used it so that I could then go away and create a tool that would make their that make their job easier. And that was the part of my career that I really enjoyed. But I wasn't passionate about financial services. I was passionate about about finding out the truth because I was one of the women who was being kind of maybe bullied into buying products that weren't the right products for me. So it was something I wanted to get to the bottom of. And of course, the tool that I use to solve problems is is building a software solution. So that's, I think, why the website made so much sense to me. Also, I don't like going into physical shops and having a conversation uh, with a sales associate because I take a little bit more time to make a buying decision. I think probably it's a little bit of control freak and OCD. But I like to have all the information that I need and then allow myself time to think about it and then make my and then make a decision. And I feel like that maybe that it's almost impolite to do that with a, with a salesperson to ask them all of these questions that they might they honestly might not have the uh, the answers to and then possibly not be ready to make a purchase right then. And then I'll feel quite rude this way. I just can do things at my own time. So e-commerce really appeals to me because I can come back to that page four or five times before I decide whether I'm going to buy something or not. So back in 2007, you had this idea and you decided to go for it. Talk us through the story from there. I actually had the idea right at the end of 2006, and it kind of came together over the, um, the Christmas break. And I started meeting with a few people that I knew that were outside of my world of investment banking at that time. So I knew a couple of people that had a little bit of experience in the fashion industry 
in journalism, for instance, and and also I knew one entrepreneur. So I started just talking to them about how how I would do this. I also went to Waterstones and I bought starting a business for dummies UK edition. Because obviously there were I was new ish to the UK in two thousand and seven. I'd moved over in two thousand and four. So there were different financial and legal and corporate structure considerations in the UK. I didn't grow up around, so I I didn't understand those. And I also found an article about how to write a business plan. And I started having these conversations, incorporating that information into the business plan. I went to the British Library because I couldn't afford um, the industry reports that I needed. And I, I just didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about this industry. And I had met a woman who was doing PR for a members club through a mutual friend at the end of December 2006, um, Alexia Ng. And I invited her out to lunch. And I had done quite a lot of this work by this time. So I took her through it. And I remember she just looked at me, leaned across the table, and she went, it's brilliant. I'm in. <laughs> um, so she was still working full time with the with the PR company, but would come over once a week in the evenings. And I would go through what, you know, I, the, I remember going through the design of the homepage and showing her the navigation that I'd structured. And she, of course, had never built a website before. So she would go, oh, yes, that looks really good. And I would say, so where should we launch? <laughs> you know, how should we try to launch this in the press? And then she would tell me and I'd never done that before. And I'd say, OK, yes, yeah, so that looks very good. So we had a <laughs> so very, you were kind of perfect fit in, this, so in we, a sense. We had you? very um, complementary skill sets. And that was very, very helpful. I have another great friend, actually, who introduced me to one of the partners at Piper, which is how I'm here, who is incredibly well-connected and incredibly generous with her connections. Her name is Lucy Aikens, and she just introduced me to so many people that I could have wonderful conversations with to help me just help me move this along. So I built the functional design of the website, which is basically the specification. So it's the database design on a piece of paper, all the tables laid out. It's mock-ups of what the pages should look like with the navigation, what information would be presented where, and descriptions of what the um, functionality on each page would be. And you knew exactly what you wanted at this point. I did because I was building something that I wanted. And I think that's where, I think that's just, that's the secret of all successful businesses is you're solving a real problem. And if you happen to be the demographic of the problem you're solving, then you have such an understanding of what's needed. And I knew that there would be other women out there who were not comfortable in the beauty department store or physical retail space and were looking for a different way and a more, um, I don't want to say educated, but a more informed way to, and to make decisions. intimidating, maybe. Yeah less, yeah, less intimidating, but also more open. If you walk into a department store, especially at the time, the brands are all set up pretty close together, and there are only certain products that are available there. There weren't any of the indie brands. I remember um, I signed up for newsletters in Australia and Italy and the U.S., and I was looking at the newest, latest products that were being talked about, and a lot of times the really innovative ones were coming from other entrepreneurs. Laura Mercier very famously yes. created Tinted Moisturizer and marketed Tinted Moisturizer because she used to take foundation and moisturizer and mix them on her palette and then apply them to her clients' faces. So it's that problem-solving aspect of it that really is the basis for 
for a successful business. Yeah. So you set this up in, in your spare bedroom, is that mm-hmm. right? I had a two uh, two bedroom flat that I shared with my husband, and he very graciously allowed me to turn one of our two bedrooms into an office. I remember having our first anniversary party out in the garden. Um, I remember actually I was in the kitchen with our current editor Verity Douglas, who's uh, still with Cult Beauty. She came on as an intern, and she was a really big part of the of the success there. So we were kind of, I mean, we just begged, borrowed, and stole whatever. Well steal, blagged, whatever we uh, whatever we could to keep going. And we kept meeting people who believed in my vision. The goal was to find the very, very best products in the world, not to convince existing customers that they needed more of what we were already creating. I remember finding Invisible Zinc. It made sense to go to Australia to look for sunscreen because there were a lot of very pale people under a hole in an ozone layer there for quite a long time. So necessity being the mother of invention, as we've discussed, a lot of really advanced sunscreen technology had come out of Australia. So just discovering those cool, new, innovative brands was really, really fun. And we also, we were so different from what existed before And we did not have a huge advertising budget. So a lot of the glossy magazines weren't really interested in writing about us, but bloggers were. And I mean, well, influencers are, they're called now, but at the time they were called beauty bloggers and they were being ignored by so many brands at the time because they, it just wasn't considered as prestigious. But the value of the search engine optimization for the links um, that the bloggers would send to our website we're still reaping the dividends and benefits of that because those links in each time they wrote about us just raised us up further and further and further in the in the Google rankings. You know, me having been the IT geek, understanding that at the time gave us such a um, such a competitive advantage because no one else was really paying attention at that time. So, a company that really had not raised any money at all, pretty much, needed to find alternative ways of growth that uh, I think a lot of companies will raise money and then spend a lot of it on advertising and marketing. And we just had to do the advertise or we just had to do the marketing ourselves. We needed to build relationships with bloggers. We needed to do PR. We needed to make sure that we leveraged Google where our big competitors were the department stores that just weren't paying attention to it at the moment and the brands themselves. A lot of the more established brands um, had been doing business a certain way for a very long time, and online just simply wasn't big enough to be of interest to them at that time, and it was unproven. So they didn't even see you coming? They didn't see us coming, and they weren't interested. I remember approaching one French brand who said, "Um, thank you, but we don't want to be on eBay. You're listening to the Piper Podcast. My guest today, Jessica DeLuca, co-founder of Cult Beauty. This was 2008. It was the financial crisis. There must have been real challenges at that point. So how did you navigate your way through that? The biggest challenge for us was fundraising. We just couldn't hire enough people to do all the work that we wanted to do to grow as fast as we wanted to grow. However, we grew 300% year on year for the first three or four years. So we, we were getting quite a lot of traction, but we knew that... If we could raise a little bit of money and hire someone who really understood marketing 
We needed a little bit of cash to be able to buy directly from the brands and improve our, our margins. Just a, There were so many little areas where a bit of cash would have made a big difference to the business. And we just weren't, we just weren't taken seriously. Um, but at the time, the professional investing world didn't really see the the potential. And I think because we, the two of us, didn't have experience in it, made it more difficult to raise uh, to raise funds. And also just the fact that we are women. You know, I, I think this is a, an old stat and it, it's getting better. But last year, or actually in 2020, I think 2.2% of VC funds raised went to women. And you're right, the, the financial crash, I think, probably exacerbated that quite a lot. We were seeing some traction. We launched in June of 2008. And then, of course, Lehman Brothers went out of business in September. So we saw we saw that impact how willing people were to take a chance on a new business that they weren't they hadn't heard of before. Mm. Were you underestimated, do you think? You were young women in your 30s. Mm-hmm. I th- yeah, I think so. Um, we returned 157x to our investors. If it was obvious to to more investors how much potential there was to this business, that would be a lower ROI because we would have easily been able to raise more money, pay ourselves better salaries, um, not have holes in our shoes, <laughs> um, probably grow grow a bit. We would have grown a lot faster had we raised that money, but that 157x is quite a standout number that I think demonstrates the just the incredible potential that there, untapped potential that there is um, in in female entrepreneurs right now. Yeah. So your original investors, everyone very, very happy with the investment they made with you. I I think so. Your partner was Alexia at this point. And then, as I understand it, you found another partner, another woman who had a background at QVC. Oh, my gosh, yes, Stacia. When I was talking about how we were meeting wonderful people who understood our vision, this was Stacia. Stacia had 20 years of experience in beauty retail, and she saw what we were doing, and she cared so deeply about integrity and ethics in business. And she she had a very, very serious career before Cult Beauty. She was uh, had started at Debenhams, and then she was head of beauty at QVC, and then we had a meeting with her about a, a brand that she uh, that she was doing some work with. And she understood uh, the mission of Cult Beauty and wanted to be part of it. And we just couldn't afford, we could not afford to pay her. So she continued consulting for a few brands to pay the bills because we sorted out a, a commission structure with her. And I think her first paycheck was, I think it was £4.37 for the month. And she stayed with us for 13 years uh, and built that business up and really brought she brought a commercial understanding that helped accelerate our growth massively. She brought an incredible network of contacts in the beauty industry. She brought a discipline of understanding the beauty industry to us. And she she brought her incredible her incredible work ethic as well. I just I, I don't think Cult Beauty would be where it is without Stacia having taken that chance on us. How soon was it that you realized you had a big success on your hands? Um, gosh, gosh, that is such a, I don't, when you're in it and you're working 12 to 18 hours a day on it and thinking about it every waking moment, the change is so incremental. 
Um, 300% growth in your first year. And it didn't feel like a huge success then. And I think sometimes I'm still reminded. Um, I mean, I think when we met and you said congratulations to me, I'm then, I'm, I'm then reminded and it, and it hits me. It's, it's gosh, it's, it, it is really hard to know. I th- okay. I d- yeah, should we should we turn this around? And were there dark moments when you doubted what you'd set in motion? No, I always believed in telling the truth. I always believed in focusing on the second sale and the third sale instead of the first. With I, I always believed in the ethics of how we were doing business. But we had a moment where um, we decided to raise some money. We've been discussing actually doing a proper funding round outside of friends and family. And what year are we talking here? This is the end of 2010. Okay, so you're two years old. Yep. Okay. And by this time, we know enough about what we're doing. And we've got this incredible track record of 300% year on year growth. The numbers were really, were really incredible. And with the help of some friends and family who had a little bit of experience in the area, we put together a deck, an investment deck and a deal sheet, and we floated it and it got snapped right up by someone who had had a lot of experience in retail and had a a nine-figure net worth at the time and also had a lot of experience in fundraising, which we didn't. We were so, we were just so green. So he just kept asking more questions and asking more questions and dragged the process out for such a long time but it was always just about to close, like just about to close. And about four months into this, he offered us, we were trying to raise a quarter of a million pounds. He offered us a quarter of a million pounds for the entire business because he thought he'd put us into such dire straits that we wouldn't be able to recover from it. And we obviously told him no. And then I remember I woke up about four o'clock or 4.30 in, in the morning and I still, and I grabbed my notepad and I just wrote down all of our expenses, all of our income, and build a PL sitting up in bed, just how to save cult beauty. We needed to make sure that we we couldn't count on any money coming in, um, and we needed to make sure that the company would be profitable so that we would never be at anyone's, um, we'd never be at risk like that. No and, one could uh, ever do. And how big were you at this, at this point? Can oh, my gosh. I feel like we were probably doing about 600,000 pounds at this time. Okay. Yeah, I'd have to look back. It seems to me like you're describing a situation where you really felt quite vulnerable because the vultures were kind of circling and there were mm-hmm. lots of people who saw some real potential there and, and wanted to get it on the cheap. So before we accepted this offer that then turned into the, I'll just take the whole business, thank you very much, mm-hmm. I had gone to New York, or we'd gone to New York, and I'd presented at an event called Fashion Vest. I presented the the deck that we'd built, and we got some interest from a VC over in the U.S. who said, you know, I, we don't invest in the U.K., but I'll introduce you to a partner in the London firm. And the partner that he introduced us to was uh, William Reeve. And William Reeve is a prolific and very successful entrepreneur and investor. And he is also incredibly generous with his contacts and also his advice. There's more than one time William got a frantic call from me saying, what do I do? And he always made time for me. He, at the time, was not in a... Uh, in the cycle of his investing where it would have made sense for him to write us a big check. So he introduced us to quite a few people that he knew that had experience in the space that were in that 
period of, of investment cycle. And we ended up bringing on Mark Quinnell from Net-A-Porter. He has a genius around e-commerce. He's an incredibly, incredibly talented analyst with an understanding of marketing. He's autistic, and he has an ability to see insights and build spreadsheets that would take me days and weeks if I'd ever get there. But I think his autism actually is a superpower in in this area. So we had this in, we had this incredible um, resource who had had success with Net-A-Porter, had the experience of luxury e-commerce and luxury e-commerce aimed at women, and he had also exited from Net-A-Porter, so he had money to invest in the company. In a subsequent fundraising round, he brought in Carmen Busquets, who as one of the co-founders and the largest uh, investor at Net-A-Porter also, um, and also just from, I love that story of how she used to bring the uh, the Polaroids back and forth from Paris to Venezuela. Um, and what a pioneer in fashion uh, and e-commerce and, um, and luxury. So we did find people that saw the potential. And people that you could trust. How do you find your way through that that jungle of people who, you know, could do you harm or could take your business from you, how do you trust? How do you navigate? I think references are very, very important. I think being part of a network of other entrepreneurs where you can be honest about what struggles you're facing and who you're talking to is very helpful. There's a a group here that I belong to called Founders. And it is a group of entrepreneurs who share experiences and resources and advice. And that didn't exist at the time when I was setting up Cult Beauty. But if it had, that would have saved us so much heartache. So I think just checking references, just because someone has a name brand or a household name does not mean they aren't a shark. <laughs> Good advice. What about the next stage then in your growth? So you have that that funding round that you described. Mm-hmm. What happened next? What happened next is that we had a lot more insights and ability to create a marketing strategy. So when we brought the money into the company, we were able to hire um, a real marketing director, Jenny Chu. And Jenny had been off on maternity leave and wanted to come back to work but didn't want to come back full time. She just had twins. So we were able to hire someone like a much bigger hitter because we were able to be flexible with the amount of time. And did the growth continue? You've described 300% in the first couple of years. And how did it go after that? And how quickly did you move? Um, After that, we had a year where the growth wasn't as great. And that's when I was coming out. I think the change in day-to-day leadership it's never that smooth for a business, and then restricted my work much more to advisory and board, and growth continued at a three-digit percentage pace. So we um, we had a core vision, mission, and strategy that was working. And you'd moved out of the spare bedroom by this stage. We had moved out of the spare bedroom <laughs> so, by this stage. So talk about scale. Where were you based? You had proper offices. How many people were you employing at that point? Um when we got to be about five people, it was too big for the spare bedroom. And um, Alexi's aunt and uncle had some office space that they rented to us really quite cheaply. Probably less than a year, we needed the, the room next door. And then 
when we took our first round of investment, we rented a Georgian townhouse in Farringdon and used the basement as our distribution center. So we brought all of our logistics in-house, which created quite a lot of savings. But it's interesting how you have to spend some money to be able to get those economies of scale. And then we had uh, three other floors where we could have our growing staff. And then in, I think it was 2014, 2015, we moved to even bigger offices in the companies. The company is still there now with the warehouse uh, is no longer at HQ. So tell me more about that that changing role. You described stepping away a little bit from the day-to-day running mm-hmm. of, of the business. How did that happen and why? Um, as you can tell, I'm American. And I had been in the UK for over a decade. And I just, I had missed out on so much with my family. I remember seeing a photo of my dad's 60th birthday. My family was in Las Vegas for, you know, just having a wonderful time and my uh, mom and sisters and cousins would go away for um, girls' weekends, and I wasn't I wasn't getting any of that. And I realized that I could continue to do a lot of what I really, really care about with Cult Beauty and be able to do that remotely and spend some time closer to my family. Th- you know, this is a company that where we had raised money from investors with the with the intention that we would return those funds to them. I didn't anticipate. I think the pandemic played into a bit of a delay, and then a decision by another person in the company as well. I didn't anticipate that we would take such a long time to to sell. So really when I stepped back, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't stuck in an earnout situation where I wouldn't be able to go back to see my family. So I was really positioning myself to be able to stay on as in an advisory role doing the things that I cared the most about, which is the product. The product is the website design and functionality and the product mix. So we designed a role for me where I would stay involved in both of those areas, but I would no longer be the chief executive officer where I really would need to be operationally involved day to day and physically present all the time, which has worked out very nicely for me. Yeah, so I, I can see that. And Alexia stayed on in much more of a, a day-to-day capacity, did you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Piper talks about building brand legends. And this is brands staying resolutely true to their purpose. What is Cult Beauty's purpose? Cult Beauty's purpose is to be a trusted source for people to get real information about which which products really work and which products don't. The purpose is to take the anxiety, fear, stress out of the beauty buying experience. And now even broader than that, in into wellness which is obviously a huge part of beauty. That's that's the core purpose. And if everyone keeps their eye on the prize of retaining that trust, then it all comes together. It's always about focusing on the second sale, not the first sale. Focusing on creating loyal customers by treating them the way that we want to be treated. It's It's the golden rule. Telling the truth, treating people as if they're intelligent beings, and having fun finding just cool, innovative, exciting new products. The litmus test for a new product coming onto Cult Beauty is that you would run to your best girlfriend and say, oh my God, you have to try this. You have to try this right away. It's the best thing I've ever found. That's what the goal is with every product selection. And of course, with brands, a particular brand has to be better and different to make it a brand legend. What is it that makes Cult Beauty better 
and different? I think the better part is really, really important because it doesn't matter so much about different for the sake of being different, but it's that you're actually solving a problem and making someone's life slightly better by doing so. That's the most important thing. I remember early, very early on, getting a letter from a customer in Italy who had been buying from us and telling us that the products that that she'd bought from us had transformed her skin and therefore her level of confidence and that her husband had never seen her as confident and comfortable in her own skin. And it actually, I think Lex and I both cried when we saw that. (laughs) And it still makes me tear up because we had always said, you know, we are not curing cancer. But if we're making people feel a little bit better about themselves and having a little bit better experience of life, that's that's something really worthwhile. That is, to me, a purpose. This was an issue. The woman in Italy had had skin issues because she was using products that were too chemical and too harsh for her skin and being told to buy another product to solve the issues that the first product were creating. And instead, our website's information was able to steer her towards something that really worked for her. And therefore, she had a slightly better experience of life. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that definitely answers the question. Also, it's a very personal connection, isn't it, to have with the consumer. When you're talking about someone's sense of themselves, which obviously their external affects very much the internal. So you have a real direct connection with people. And I just wonder, you know, how would you describe the, the tone of voice of cult beauty in that communication? How do you connect with your customers. I remember the line that I wrote in the business plan, actually. It was that I wanted it to be like sitting down with your best girlfriend, someone who always made you laugh, but also just happened to be Jennifer Aniston's dermatologist and makeup artist. So <laughs> we somebody, need friends like this. <laughs> so we wanted, I just, I didn't want it to be taking ourselves too seriously, but everything needed to be real and true and presented in a way that was understandable. There's a lot of pseudoscientific words in the beauty industry. And another one of my rules was, if you don't understand the word, you're not allowed to use it in a sentence without explaining and defining what that word means in our website content. There's a lot of terms that are trademarked or, yeah, exactly, that they don't really mean anything. And if we try to intimidate people into thinking that they need that because it looks like a big, impressive word that's that means that that ingredient is going to do something very fantastic for them um, when it's just it's just BS. Um, <laughs> we're we're really completely undermining the whole purpose of cult beauty existing. So I guess the tone of voice was approachable, informed, and funny. Not taking ourselves too seriously because it's beauty. It should be fun. Yeah. But it can be serious as well. So you've built this community of customers. Who are they? I mean, can you identify a typical cult beauty customer? I want to hesitate to speak too much to where the company is now because I'm not involved. It is um, the Hutt Group and the current employees of cult beauty that determine that now and, and understand that more than I do. But in the early and middle and middle to late days of cult beauty, it was people that were really passionate about beauty products and found found beauty buying fun. And the way the internet has grown, 
has only helped that, hasn't it? You know, with Instagram and with YouTube, there are so many cult beauty videos describing products, mm -hmm. demonstrating products, conversations between experts. I mean, the, the, the world has developed perfectly for cult beauty. That's absolutely true. As, as you're saying that, that that's our educational, that's our university right there. Yeah. That's the educational approach. It's demonstrating its, its conversations with experts. It's also conversations that people are having with each other. And I think that cult beauty does a very good job of using social media in the way that it it should be, and that sounds quite judgmental, but in the way that it can add value to the world rather than in the way that social media can be detrimental. So it's providing information and support and advice rather than FOMO. I'm really proud of how the PR and marketing team at Cult Beauty has used social media as an educational tool rather than, which could have been very easily which very easily could have done, um, could have happened, is sliding back into that selling by selling by fear, which has happened a lot on social media. And I think Cult Beauty's navigated that very gracefully. Or, or selling by envy. Yes. You know, because the world of beauty is potentially very toxic, isn't it? We, we look at glossy magazines. I mean, this is not, not a new insight at all, but you see these beautiful faces, the supermodels, the, the very slender, the perfect of, of complexion. So it, it can be an intimidating and dispiriting world, can't it? So how has Cult Beauty managed to navigate that to make it a supportive and educational experience, do you think? Well, I think the word educational is exactly how it has. Um, Cindy Crawford has very famously throughout her career been very open about how much genetics has played into her beauty routine. She's just she's just born that way. And I think that cult beauty has focused on working with what you, with what you have and empowering individuals to understand what the products are and what the products do. So we're not promising to turn you into a Victoria's Secret model. We're saying that if you have this particular problem, this particular ingredient might help and then empowering you to make that decision. And do the customers communicate back? Was there a two-way conversation going with your consumer base? Absolutely. There's now an army of, <laughs> of, um, of beauty, beauty hunters. Exactly. <laughs> Hunting out the, yeah, the coolest and the, and the latest. So, yeah, absolutely. Because everyone in, in that community is just is passionate about it. Mm. We talked about um, the financial crash in 2008, which in a way it was a challenge, but also had an opportunity with it. The pandemic, of course, has been the biggest impact on the world in the last couple of years. And I wonder how that has affected the world of e-commerce and in, in terms of cult beauty. Well, it's definitely accelerated. I mean, I think every well-run e-commerce business will have seen an acceleration of adoption. When we were in lockdown, going to a physical shop was no longer an option. And as much as I dislike going to a shop, there are lots of people who love going to a shop and that and that experience. And I think many people who never would have thought of buying something like beauty online gave it a try. And especially with the way that Cult Beauty is set up, where we're so focused on making sure that we're providing an excellent service, that that first try turns into a second try and a third try. I remember when we were designing our packaging, one of the key things was, because we got so much less by, by post at the time, I wanted it to feel almost 
when a when a parcel arrived, like it was a a Christmas present to yourself, like the, that exciting. So it should it should be pretty. It should be well presented. It should just be the whole thing should be should be a fun experience. The other thing that we found really early on is that people would try us out and buy something very small, and then they would come back and buy a few more things because what we had sold them and told them about for that first sale turned out to be the truth, and they had a good experience there, so that they would come back and be much bigger, more loyal, more loyal customers. And we had we had really good statistics around that, and I think that was a huge part of our growth. So, of course, when the pandemic came along, we had already reached a lot of the early adopters of, of e-commerce. And this was the next level of people who probably never would have thought of it. But the way that we had set up the business with the logistics and the packaging and the merchandising and the user experience, both online and offline, being delightful, we had a lot of, a lot of retention among that new cohort that we'd attracted. Cult Beauty is very much an international company, isn't it? You have customers all over the world. What were the particular challenges of growing internationally? Um, economies of scale. So we had international customers finding us before we were ready to really ship to, really ship to them because we hadn't thought of that. But because of the, the product mix was just so good. Um, we were attracting customers from all over the world because people who really, really were in the know couldn't get those particular products wherever they were. But the cost of shipping those products to that customer is a lot higher internationally than it is domestically. The Royal Mail is such a blessing for entrepreneurs, e-commerce entrepreneurs in the UK. Um, Coming from the US, it is a lot more expensive and a lot slower to ship product anywhere. So the Royal Mail is so wonderful. But once you go abroad, there's all kinds of tax and logistical considerations. Some of our products work okay internationally easily without putting much thought into it. But shower gel, it's not particularly profitable for us. And it's and it's heavy. One of our most interesting customers, who is one of the most successful women in fashion, had gone to a Komoshambala resort and discovered the bath and body wash there, which smells so divine. And one of our experts had told us about this, so we had put it into our product mix. Um, and she has been very successful, so she didn't order one; she ordered six. <laughs> so, um, so we needed to we needed to figure out a way to to get those to her. Um, and I don't think that we made any money on that particular order, but she became a loyal customer, and she also became a mentor. She and her husband have built a multi billion pound retail empire, which is worldwide, and they are so incredibly well well respected. I just, I don't know if I've seen anything executed so well for so many decades as what they've done. And when they opened their first shop uh, here in the UK, they sat down and spent six hours with us going through our business plan. So even though it was an expensive package to ship, um, thank you, Megan Dick. You sold to the Hutt Group 2021. We did. And I read somewhere that you said... Businesses aren't sold, they're bought. What do you mean by that? Um, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs believe they have more control over the destiny of their business than they do, especially once once they start to take investment and promise a return to investors. So it's that, that same sentiment around buying beauty products. I don't buy a beauty product because I'm told... That I'm going to buy that beauty product at that price. 
I buy that beauty product because it's what I want. So we were bought by a company that wanted cult beauty. And we were in a very, very fortunate position that we worked very hard to put ourselves in that quite a few companies did want us. But you can't usually demand the terms of your own sale and exactly when that's going to happen because it's also about investment cycles. Like I'd mentioned for individual investors, it's the same thing with companies and with institutional investors um, and the stock market. It's when there's an entity that needs what you're selling and has the resources and the money to, to buy it. You sold it for a lot of money, $275 million. Um, I just wonder how tough it was to make that decision to sell. That was always the intention, and that was what we had promised our investors 10 years before. So that decision was already, it was already made. We were going to build something wonderful up, and we needed to make a return to our investors because we'd promised to do so. I think there were a few options for how to make sure that cult beauty stays true to its roots and remains a useful resource for people. And those roots are an IPO, going public, or another option, which is the one that we took, is selling to a company that has a track record of respecting its acquisitions. So the Hot Group had acquired quite a few of our competitors, I think back in 2000, and I think it was 2010. Who were your main competitors then? Um, the ones that they acquired then, I think, were Look Fantastic and HQ Hair. Those brands still exist, and they still exist very much in the form that they existed 10 years ago. They weren't absorbed. They weren't caught and killed, which I think could have been a real, a real danger for cult beauty because we do things differently and so therefore can be threatening to threatening to an industry. So the fact that the Hutt Group had a decade-long track record of having respected the the brands that they'd acquired made them a much a very obvious partner for us. Mm. And you say we had to sell because that's what we promised our investors, but that doesn't make it necessarily any easier. And I just wonder in terms of, and you've kind of alluded to this already, the emotional trauma of selling the thing that you'd made, you know, your creation. Yes, it's, uh, I mean, it's bittersweet, of course. Um, I miss working with so many of the, so many of the team, but I'm still friends with them and we still have relationships. So, so that's not done, but it also... Actually, I was on the phone call. I was. Uh, it was myself and our lawyer who handed the the company over. My husband videoed it. I think my. Um, I definitely think my voice got a bit wobbly as I was handing over the reins and saying, you know, congratulations, and they have a a wonderful asset, and uh, that I knew that they were going to take great care of that asset. So it it is emotional, but it's also it's also thrilling because as an entrepreneur, that's what I set out to do. I set out to change an industry, and I did. I mean, indie beauty is no longer on the fringes of the beauty industry. That was cult beauty. Influencers are no longer, and bloggers are no longer on the fringe. Um, E-commerce is no longer on the fringe. Education and telling the truth about what your products do is no longer on the fringe. Um, that's the thing that I almost can't believe. I just, I can't believe that 
my idea that I put down in a business plan ended up making such an impact into such a big industry. But I think Alexia did when she leaned over the table and looked at me and said, it's brilliant, I'm in. And you walked away Mm -hmm. with a, a very nice lump sum, I'm assuming. How important was it to you to make money? Um, if that was the motivation, we would have run the company in a very, in a different way. Of, of course, it's, there's a feeling of security to be able to own my house, for instance, and to be able to help my family out with education for my nieces and houses and we, we, just that we don't have to worry about that makes such a huge impact into one's life. But I think once you're basic needs are taken care of, money doesn't really improve your life that much. That incremental money doesn't, unless you're competing with other people to have the best address or the, you know, the flashiest handbag or something. But then I was going to say that probably isn't improving your life. So the experience of building up cult beauty and not paying ourselves much because we were putting everything back into the business for such a long time. It was a great relief to be able to not have to worry about paying bills. But I care so much more about the impact that we had on the industry than I do about the numbers, if that makes sense. Mm. Do you have any regrets? I don't know. I think I think that I did the best I could. Um, I'm really proud of how it's turned out. It's such a well-respected name because we always treated people so well that my next chapter looks wonderful because there's lots of people that want to meet me and talk to me about what they're doing. And that comes from having been a good person and um, and having ethics while I was building this business. So yeah, there's little time, there's little things I would have done differently, but I'm I'm just I'm immensely proud of it. And I I mean I can't believe like I pinch myself. I can't believe I did that. I mean, really? That's me? The girl from Michigan? Seriously? I did that? It's it I mean it's just wonderful. Okay, so if there's someone else who wants to do something similar to what you did, what advice would you give them? Um it sounds so American and cheesy, but it's about following your heart because it's it's something I cared passionately about. It was a problem that I was coming across, and then when I say my heart, I guess I mean my my value system. I built something that I'm proud of. So that all comes back to being being authentic about and understanding who you are, what you care about, what you care about making a difference in, what what upsets you when you see it in the world, and how can you fix it, and why do you want to fix it? Asking yourself those questions, because if you are really honest with yourself and what your motivations and your values are, then you can solve a problem from its root, and that's, I think, what makes lasting change. Are you motivated to start again, do another business? I am. It's just who I am. Um, lots of people that I respect um, have one similar thread in the advice they've given, and it's go slow. Go mm -hmm. slow and take some time. Mm. <laughs> you see, having... I, I have a suspicion <laughs> you're saying I'm going slow. I don't think you go slow. I don't think slow is what you do. I think, yeah, you're right. But I think what I can do is not commit too early. I mean, I don't think that everyone meant to say to me, you know, just stop being effective <laughs> and efficient. They mean to say, don't commit to something too soon because, and actually, I remember the founder of Gray saying this to me 
years ago, whatever next project you commit to is the next three to 10 years of your life. So you've got to be honest and realistic about what that commitment is. So I am forcing myself not to commit to all or any of the very cool ideas that are coming up from myself and from um, from people that I've been meeting so that I can make a considered decision and fulfill that commitment when I do make a decision. It's really interesting that it's just a question of too much, in a way, coming your way now, too many choices, which is a wonderful position to be in, isn't it? It is, but it's also the paradox of choice, right? Yeah. And then the pressure to get it right and to not allow yourself to second guess once you do decide. But also, and I know it's so, it's so cheesy and American, but if it speaks to your heart, if it makes your heart sing, then you know you've made the right decision. With Cult Beauty, I would wake up thinking about it and go to sleep thinking about it, and I only ever wanted to talk to Alexia because we lived and breathed it. We loved it, absolutely loved it. So once you feel like that about a project, that's when that's when you know you're you're on the right track. And yeah, it's the heart singing is really important. Jessica DeLuca, lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. It's been so nice to meet you.